We turn this morning to Genesis, the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, up to chapter 40 now in our study there. We've been following the ups and downs of the life of Joseph, God's work in him. He was lifted up as his father Jacob honored him and gave him that beautiful coat, place of honor. As he received dreams that God gave of his exaltation. And then he was cast down into a pit by his brothers, stripped of the coat, and sold to the Ishmaelites, brought down to Egypt, and sold to Potiphar as a slave. But then he was lifted up as God gave him a success, and Potiphar elevated David or uh, Joseph to being in control of all that Potiphar owned. And then Potiphar's wife accused David, and he was cast down and into prison. And that's where we find him, Genesis chapter 40, in prison, as we give our attention to God's Holy Word. Genesis 40 at verse 1. It came to pass after these things that the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief butler and the chief baker. So he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison, the place where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he served them. So they were in custody for a while. Then the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, had a dream, both of them. Each man's dream in one night, and each man's dream with its own interpretation. And Joseph came into them in the morning and looked at them and saw that they were sad. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in the custody of his Lord's house, saying, Why do you look so sad today? And they said to him, We each have had a dream, and there is no interpreter of it. So Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell them to me, please. Then the chief butler told his dream to Joseph and said to him, Behold, in my dream, a vine was before me, and in the vine were three branches. It was as though it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and its clusters brought forth ripe grapes. Then Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days. Now within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your place, and you will put Pharaoh's cup in his hand according to the former manner when you were his butler. But remember me when it is well with you, and please show kindness to me. Make mention of me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For indeed, I was stolen away from the land of the Hebrews, and also I have done nothing here that they should put me into the dungeon. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was good, he said to Joseph, I also was in my dream, and there were three white baskets on my head. In the uppermost basket were all kinds of baked goods for Pharaoh, and the birds ate them out of the basket on my head. So Joseph answered and said, this is the interpretation of it. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head from you and hang you on a tree. 
and the birds will eat your flesh from you. Now it came to pass on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. Then he restored the chief butler to his butlership again, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. God's holy word. We bow before the Lord to ask for his blessing upon it. Shall we ask him? Our Father in heaven, who interprets all things, we pray that you would interpret your word to us, that you'd cause to be preached in truth and with grace, and that you, Lord, would visit our hearts through Christ who speaks. Give us faith. Father, we do lift up prayers for our brothers and sisters in Cape Coral. We thank you for your mercy to spare all of their lives. And we pray that you bless them as they seek to rebuild. You provide for their necessities, that you will give them all that they need. And above all, Lord, give them a faithful witness in their community as they testify to the Lord of hurricanes and to the Lord of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the whole account, brothers and sisters, the whole account of the story of the life of Joseph is a, is a glorious story of God's perfect providence. And it's a story, of course, that has comforted many, many people to see how God was at work controlling all things, overruling all evil for good. It's, it's a glorious revelation of God's providence. But this morning, as we come to Genesis chapter 40, I want to encourage you to consider something more specifically than just God's general providence. I want you to think more specifically about how God is working out the exaltation of Joseph. The the, the purpose of God here is to get Joseph elevated in Egypt, right? Joseph will become the prime minister, second in charge in Egypt, and through that he he will preserve the grain for the coming famine. Through that, the family of Jacob, his brother's His brothers, through his father Jacob, will be preserved, and the world in many ways will be saved. That's God's purpose, and to get his people down to live in Egypt, to preserve them from the corruption of Canaan. But but how will God exalt Joseph? I don't know if you've ever considered it, but you know, there are probably a thousand other ways God could have exalted Joseph. He could have left Joseph in Potiphar's house, where he'd given Joseph such success, And he could have grown in his success, and finally maybe Pharaoh needed someone in his kingdom to run something, and Potiphar could have recommended Joseph, and Joseph could have excelled. Or Joseph, as a slave, maybe could have been drafted into the Egyptian army, and then come into a great opportunity to show heroism, and proved himself a champion of war, and been exalted. There's lots of different ways God could have exalted Joseph. But how does God do it? God chooses to exalt Joseph by giving to him the interpretation of dreams. God exalts Joseph by giving to Joseph the knowledge, the light of God, that Joseph in this dark prison and in this dark land of Egypt might proclaim God's truth. God makes of Joseph a prophet. 
And in this, as God is at work to preserve a prophetic people, I think God is telling his church, reminding his people, that the route to glory for the church is not by denying our prophetic task in a dark world, but by embracing it. And as Israel, wandering in the wilderness, hears this story told, a people who've let the light go out in so many ways, who worshipped idols in Egypt, but now brought out to be a bright light, God is reminding them that the path to glory is by embracing their prophetic task in this world. Let's look at that this morning as we see, first of all, the conviction of God's servant Joseph, the conviction he has, and then secondly, the character of the message he speaks, the character of the message, and then thirdly, the cost, the cost of his calling. Those three points, the conviction of God's servant, the character of his message, and the cost of his calling. Well, the previous chapter, Genesis 39, had ended with that news that the Lord was with Joseph, showed him mercy and gave him favor inside of the prison guard. And now Joseph, in this place of of service in the prison now, an opportunity comes by the hand of the Lord for God to magnify his word. By God's design, two officials of King Pharaoh are put into prison. The butler, or the cupbearer, as we call him, and the baker. And these were significant positions, They, for one thing, protected against assassination plots, which were frequent, I imagine. See, kings often assassinated in in the line of Israel, right? And they also perhaps were advisors to the king. They stood near to the king. These men had an important task, but they had committed something that offended Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. We're not told if it was some minor offense or it was an assassination attempt. We're not told if... If it was proven against them or if the king just got sick for a few days and suspected them of poisoning him or what it was. But in any case, these men are in great, great danger, right? They are in the crosshairs of the most important and most powerful man they know, the king of Egypt. And in God's perfect plan, these two men are not just put into the same prison where God has elevated Joseph to be in charge. But these men are specifically entrusted to Joseph's keeping. And more than that, these two men, on the very same night, both have a dream. They both have a dream related to their callings, cupbearer and baker. And they're both very troubled by their dreams, not knowing what they mean. You can understand their desire for knowledge. Everybody in the world wants to know what the future holds. Some people sinfully read horoscopes. Try to figure out the future and what it means, what it portends. We cry out to God in prayer. We want to know. In the Old Testament, when God's people were disobedient, God took away his word from them. He sent Elijah out of the land of Israel. Or in Psalm 74, when the enemies were attacking, the psalmist said, We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. To be without light, to be without revelation, puts one in a difficult place. Now, the cupbearer here and the the baker here are not longing for a true prophet from God. They, They surely used to have access to the magicians of Egypt. They used to be able to call in the men who practiced this art of interpretation, which was not a a Christian work, but a devilish work. 
they had the professional fortune tellers. And so when Joseph comes in, they explain they're grieved. They don't have access to these interpreters. And Joseph's reply is what? Joseph says in verse 8, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. And with that word, Joseph casts down all the foolishness of Egypt. Because Joseph is saying, God, there's one who's exalted, who knows the future because he wrote the future. He's ordained all things. There's one who is sovereign. Joseph's conviction is that this world is not a meaningless collision of random particles, but there's a story writer and there's a king on high who reigns over everything. Is there not someone who can tell you the future? Is there not someone who rules the future? Is it not God? One of the joys of Reformed theology that we embrace is is rejoice in the majestic sovereignty of God. God is sovereign in creation. God is sovereign in his word. God is sovereign in salvation. And that delights us. Joseph upholds this conviction. That there is a God who reigns and also a God who speaks and reveals It's remarkable that Joseph says this. Think of what's happened in Joseph's life. Joseph had dreams, right? His sheaf stood upright and his brother's sheaves bowed down to him. Joseph had dreams that the stars and sun and moon would bow down to him. He had these dreams of elevation, yet where is he? Slave in Egypt, falsely accused, thrown into prison. You know, he might have walked in when these guys said, we had dreams and we don't know what they mean. What if he walked in and said, ah, dream shmeems. They don't mean nothing. Nothing means nothing. There's no meaning and purpose in this world. But he doesn't. He says there's a God who interprets. There is a meaning to life. There's a Lord who rules. Tell me your dreams. You can note, of course, that we're talking here about a specific Instance, the Bible is not teaching that all of our random dreams have this kind of significance or need to be interpreted. Maybe we should say that to make it clear. God's chosen method of speaking today is not in dreams, but by his scriptures. But the Lord was at work here in this case, wasn't he, with the dreams he gave these men? And Joseph apparently has access to these dreams through the Lord. Joseph is a kind of prophet. And through Joseph, what is God doing? But he's, he's rescuing a prophetic people. That's what Israel, to, the family of Jacob, the church, is to be a prophetic witness upon the earth. Do you remember at the end of, of Psalm 147? The psalm says that God declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his judgments to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any nation, with any other nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. That's what God taught his church to sing at the end of Psalm 147. They should sing, thank you, Lord, for your word. We have the truth that no one else in the world has. You've deposited your truth among us. Joseph believes it. God had told Abraham that he would be, that through him, God would bless the families of the earth. And ultimately, God does that through Jesus Christ, whom we confess in Lord's Day 12 is our chief prophet and teacher, through whom God reveals to us the will of God concerning our salvation. The Son of God came down from heaven to show us God and show us the way to God. 
And then Lord's Day 12 says that we share in Christ's anointing, and we are prophets. Think about that. God saves the family of Jacob, the church, to have a witness upon the earth, a prophetic people. We live in a world, too, that's as dark as Egypt's was, right? People are always asking the question, why? Why hurricanes? Why war and rumors of war? Why broken homes and broken hearts? Why? What does it mean? Is there any meaning? And we have the sufficient, authoritative, clear testimony from the very heart and mind of God. We have the word. A book by which we can interpret everything that happens in this world. Not in terms of explaining every detail and its purpose, but surely in explaining where we came from, creation, what happened, the fall into sin, and redemption, the story of Christ. The world needs answers. But in order for us to be a prophetic people, we have to live in the light of the answers. Not only do we have to study the book and be be those who are well-versed with the Scriptures, but we have to be those who are submissive to the Scriptures and who interpret our own life in the light of the Word. Right? Because if we don't, if we become hopeless, well, just imagine if Joseph was downcast in the prison and was walking around with his head hanging low every day thinking, "Ah, this is terrible, God has forsaken me, nothing means anything, God is unfaithful. When he walked in the prison cell and saw these two guys with their heads hanging low, would he, have, would he have seen them? Would he have noticed their downcast faces? Would he have even cared? Maybe would he have said to them, hey, you think you got problems? I've got problems. Carried away, made a slave, falsely accused of sexual assault. I've got problems. But Joseph walks in, apparently with his face looking upright, and immediately notices the downcast faces of the butler and baker. It's remarkable, I think. Years ago, when I lost some vision, I remember being in the doctor's office, first time I had anything seriously wrong with me, and he's telling me that this is, I thought it was nothing big deal. I thought I just had swollen eyelid or something. He said, no, you've got issues. And then, well, what could it be? He starts saying, well, it could be any of these diseases. And then I had lots of questions. You know, I was kind of, perhaps overly urgent. And in God's providence, and it's in a long process, so you end up going back to the same doctor many, many more times afterwards. But on this occasion, he puts me in the hospital, and, and all this happens. But looking back, as I started going back to that doctor, I thought, I wonder what kind of witness I was. Did I look like a believer who is confident that my God reigns, and this is all in his hands? Or did I appear just like all of his frazzled, unbelieving patience who thought maybe it's all a matter of chance and it's something to be worried about. I've also noticed in my life that when I go to the checkout aisle or I'm looking for something in the home improvement store, trying to get something done, I, I want to use people quickly. Tell me where it is, ring this up, get me out of here, I've got a project to do. But is that living in light of God's providence, that time belongs to the Lord? And the project will get done if God wants it to get done. 
Or is that just like so many unbelieving customers who run past everybody because I got to get this done? You see? You see? If we're not interpreting our life in the light of God's word, we are unprepared to help anyone else interpret their life in the light of God's word. Maybe we're downcast. Maybe we're depressed with a kind of spiritual depression that we haven't embraced the realities of the word. Maybe we're angry at God. Maybe we're fretting about the future. Isn't it striking that when Joseph walks in, he sees the need, and he is prepared to bring God's word to bear upon their lives? People of God, we are to be prophetic people in this world. It's our calling. It's our calling for this reason. God has put us here, and the route to glory for us is by speaking the truth to our neighbor. We need to speak the truth to the world. We need to look beyond our family and our church to the world, the places God puts us. But, of course, we also need to speak that word of truth to each other and help one another interpret what's happened this past week in the light of the word. We need to be prophets in the home as parents teaching our children to interpret all things in the light of God's word. This is why we we prize a God-centered education for them, that they might look at history and science and the arts all from this perspective of our creator, God, and ruler. Joseph has a task, and he has a conviction. The Lord reigns. Interpretations belong to God because God is God the author of history. Secondly, look at the character of Joseph's message, the character of really God's message. We notice that secondly. Joseph is told the dream by the butler. There's this vine. It has three branches. Branches produce fruit. Fruit squeezed into the cup. The cup is held by the butler. The butler gives it to Pharaoh. Joseph says, in three days, you'll have your position back. You'll be restored to office. The baker says, that's nice. Let me tell you my dream. Three baskets on my head. Top one's full of pastries and danishes and breads for the pharaoh. And there's birds eating it out of the top basket. Doesn't ponder to think why he's not shooing the birds away. Two dreams. But the second one, quite different. Joseph says, in three days, you'll be dead. You're going to be executed. Two dreams, same night. Two office bearers in the king's court. Two dreams, similar, number three. Both dreams involve the man who performs his office. But the outcome's so different. Restoration, be reconciled to the king. Death, be condemned by the king. The exact opposite. Now it's surprising in some ways, isn't it, that Joseph interprets for the baker his dream. What did Joseph have to gain by explaining to the baker he's going to be dead in three days? Some have suggested that in Pharaoh's court, the magicians would have never, even if they believed it, would have never told the baker the truth. Because you don't get very far telling a high official, you know what, you're going to die. Right? What if the baker called the, the prison guard and said, Joseph is harassing me? Would that have gone well for Joseph? 
What if the baker who's in Joseph's charge got depressed in prison and hung himself? Or went into a rage and started fighting? Would that help out Joseph? Joseph had nothing to gain, it seemed, but he spoke the truth. Because if there's one characteristic about the message, it's that it's true. The church doesn't get to make up the message and tailor it and and soften it and make it what we want it to be. We're entrusted with a message and we have to declare that message. Thus saith the Lord. So Joseph speaks God's truth in Egypt. In a world of lies and a culture and a country ruled by the evil one, the father of lies, the light of God is there in Joseph and Joseph speaks it. And that truth of God has two sides, doesn't it? It's a discriminating word. It's not the same message to everyone. It's a message of life or a message of death, isn't it? It's a word that uncovers and a word that divides. One of you will be reconciled to the king. One of you will be killed by the king. Two quite different things. Now, for both of the men, it's really a word of mercy, isn't it? Because by this word... The butler could have realized that his life is not controlled by Pharaoh, but by the great king, and he could have bowed to God and praised him. And the chief baker, while it's not good news for his physical life, he was given three days to prepare to meet not the king, but to meet the king of kings. And he could have humbled his heart, and he could have recognized that the king of kings had put a prophet in his cell and asked this prophet, how do you get right with God? We don't know if the baker came to saving faith. But we do know that Joseph spoke the truth. And that's the calling of the church of Christ, not to round the sharp edges of the gospel message, but to preach the full truth to the world. What do we say to a world that wants to talk about forest fires and hurricanes only in terms of weather patterns, or climate change, when the scriptures tell us that these things are signs of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Wars, famines, destructions are so many signs that the king, the judge, is coming. What do we say to people who are all mixed up about sexual ethics, confused about gender, putting their ultimate hope in politics and in government. We have a word to speak. And it's a true word. And Joseph here passes the test of a true prophet because Deuteronomy 18 says the test of a true prophet is, does it come to pass? And so exactly what Joseph has proclaimed comes to pass. One lives, one dies. But that happens not because Joseph is some great magician who can see into the future, but because the Spirit of Christ is at work in Joseph, the same Christ who will come in the flesh, the true prophet from above, and he will prophesy concerning his own life. He will interpret for us his own life. And he will say to his disciples, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed, delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. 
Just as Joseph said, the baker's head will be lifted up, he'll be hung. So Christ prophesied, I'll be hung on a cross. But Jesus also said, and he will be raised on the third day. And just as Joseph prophesied that the butler would be lifted up in glory, so Christ prophesied he would be exalted, raised from the dead and lifted up. What Christ speaks is always the true word. He speaks the truth about himself so we can know him and trust in him. And he speaks the truth about us so that we can know our need of him and run to him and flee to him. Jesus speaks the truth. He says to sinners, you have no life in yourself. You have no righteousness in yourself. If you're trusting in yourself, you will perish eternally. But he also says, I am life. I am righteousness. I am forgiveness. And I will save you if you look to me. You will be raised up in glory with me. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 2 talks about this two-sided word, this discriminating word, when he says, for we are, I think he's talking about the apostles, he says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. And who is sufficient for these things? See, Paul's saying the great weight of an eternal word is set upon us to declare It's a word of life and it's a word of death. God is reminding his church here in this story that we have been made competent in matters of life and death. We haven't, most of us, been to medical school. We haven't, the most of us, have PhDs and this or that. But we are, by the Spirit of Christ in us, entrusted with this word, we are competent to speak about matters of eternal significance, matters of life and death. A message that's ultimately more important than what the President of the United States says, what the medical doctor says, what our broker says. We don't know whether this message led to the baker's salvation, but we know that Joseph's proclaiming of it led to the world's salvation. Because when the cupbearer at last remembers Joseph, He remembers him and recommends him to Pharaoh because what Joseph said came to pass. If Joseph had rounded off the edges and said to to the baker, well, you know, three baskets, yeah, maybe, maybe you'll be exalted in three days. Then the butler, in days to come, the best he could have said to Pharaoh was, well, I met this guy in prison, he gets it right half the time. Would Pharaoh have called him from the prison? If he gets it right half the time. You see, the credibility of Joseph was tied to the truth. Just as our credibility as the church is tied to truth speaking. Notice what happens to liberal churches. They empty out. The great churches of our land that used to be filled with gospel preaching. As they set aside the gospel to preach God's general kindness to everybody. And, you know, you should try to be a good person, too. Over time, people quit coming because they thought, you know, that's not different than what the world says. If God's fine with me, if everything's okay, if be a good person, I can get that anywhere in the world. Why bother going to church? 
You see, but when the church preaches the truth, then she's different from the world. When the church preaches God's message, then when God works in the hearts of the world, they say there's something spoken that's not spoken anywhere else. We need the truth. We need the true character of the true message, a message of life and a message of death, a message of grace, a message that summons sinners to come and find life, the only place it can be found in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But finally, this morning, I point you to the cost of the calling. If this sounds like a great calling to be the Lord's prophetic people and to speak his word, God warns us it will cost us greatly. Joseph is paying the price. Because he told his brothers his dreams from God, they hated him and sold him into slavery. Because Joseph told Mrs. Potiphar the truth about sexual ethics, I may not take you another man's wife, she falsely accused him. And now Joseph speaks the truth to the butler and baker, and he pleads with the butler to remember him when he is saved and restored. Tells him, I was unjustly treated, I don't belong here in prison. But at the end of the passage we read, verse 23, let the chief... Yet the chief butler did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. What a remarkable event. A man has just spoken the true word. The exact truth. And he asked for this one favor that you remember him before Pharaoh, and you can't even do that for him. But then you're left asking, of course, was his forgetting of Joseph unintentional? just slipped his mind, or was it perhaps intentional? Because what if the butler had told Pharaoh about Joseph? Would he like to come in to Pharaoh, a man who says that Potiphar had mistreated him and put him in prison, and a man who alleges that Potiphar's wife is a lying, immoral woman? Maybe it was easier just to forget about Joseph and to let good enough alone. If you speak the truth, brothers and sisters, at the workplace, the right time, if you speak the truth, live the truth in your neighborhood, if you uphold the truth at school, you will face consequences. You will be forgotten at work, perhaps, for a promotion. Even though everyone knows you did the work, they might just forget about it. You might be forgotten as a a young person or young adult to be invited to the party because they don't want you around with your standards. There's a cost to being a prophetic people. Yet in the midst of this, God is at work. God is shaping Joseph for his future service. God is getting everything ready. If the butler had told Pharaoh about Joseph at this point, the butler might have said, you know, every, or the Pharaoh might have said, you know, everyone thinks they're innocent. But when the Pharaoh's desperate, none of his magicians in the next chapter can interpret his dreams, then he'll be ready to hear about Joseph. But there is a mystery to suffering, isn't it? There's a mystery to suffering. Why do we need to suffer? And the only way to understand suffering is to look at our Lord Jesus 
The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Amazing. The Son of God from the side of the Father has come down. If anyone can tell us about life, the meaning of life, if anyone can tell us about God, if anyone can tell us how to get God, here he is. You seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, Jesus said. The true prophet was rejected. And yet, strangely enough, the victory of God comes precisely through that suffering. Christ put him on a cross. Christ bearing the sins of his people. Christ dying for our sins that it might be lifted high. And Christ the whole way through, even on the cross, still speaking the truth. And so we know that suffering is not meaningless. Whether it be the persecution for speaking the truth, or even if it be our own medical problems, our own emotional problems, our own mental problems. It has a purpose. And we know one other thing that makes all the difference in the world, and it's this. That what we need in the end is not that the world remembers us, but what we need, what we really need, is that our chief prophet, our priest, and our eternal king remembers us. As you read this story of Genesis 40, maybe your mind is drawn to the cross, where it's not Joseph at the center now, but it's Jesus. And it's not a butler and a baker in prison, but it's two criminals, one on each side of the Savior. And it's one who apparently is headed to hell. He is mocking Jesus. And it's another who has come to know the truth and is now prophesying against the mocker and saying, stop it, we are guilty, he is not. And this one now saying to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Lord, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? When you are restored, when you are lifted from the dead, when you are exalted in glory again, remember me. And Jesus says today, you'll be with me. In paradise. What we really need in the midst of the world's disdain at times for the truth is not the comfort that they like us or they'll remember us. What we need to know is Matthew 28, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. Are you convinced of that this morning? You can't perform your prophetic task without it. Is your sin laid upon the back of Jesus and his righteousness given you? Are you at peace with God through the only way to come to God, the Christ? Are you committed now to interpreting your life in the light of God's word? No more will I allow myself the liberty to make it up according to my whims, but I will search the scriptures to know what they say about the meaning of life and the purpose of my existence. And by the grace of God, I will speak his truth. Because there's a Savior who's died for all of my cowardice, all of my selfishness, all the times I was consumed with me and couldn't see the downcast face of my neighbor. But he's borne that guilt, and he's filled with his spirit, 
And he sends me forth now with a new heart and a new devotion to speak. The church is the light of God upon earth. There is no other community. There's no other organization that has the competency to interpret life. May we speak the word of Jesus. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word that reveals our Savior to us and the way to our Father above. And Father, we pray you'd forgive us where we've been careless prophets with your truth or cowardice prophets and failing to speak. Make us a people who are glad to interpret life to a world that has so many questions. Help us in this task. We need the anointing of your spirit. We are nothing in ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, Father. Amen. This time we prepare